Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning then to our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. So we're looking at chapter 14 in verses 26 to 31. Mark chapter 14, verses 26 to 31. Mark chapter 14, verses 26 to 31. Brothers and sisters, if you would, then hear with me the reading of God's Word. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Now, many people in our world, and perhaps even some of you, have felt the sting of betrayal. Uh, There are many children in this world who have felt the sting of betrayal by a a parent who has gotten up and and left the family, perhaps when they were a young child. Uh, There are many people who have felt the sting of betrayal from a a sibling, perhaps, or or a best friend that they grew up with who, who perhaps did something very harmful or or hurtful behind their backs. Uh, Spouses oftentimes feel the sting of betrayal through the infidelity of their spouse. Uh, And even there are parents in this world who know what it it is to feel that sting of betrayal uh, from their children. Children who perhaps take advantage of them or, or, or steal from them after all that their parents have done. And for many, this this betrayal would then result in a, a complete and a, a total cutting off from the one who betrayed them. Uh, they would say, you know, erase my number from your phone. Uh, forget I exist. Don't come to my home any longer. I want nothing more to do with you. And for many, I think that would seem like the, like the reasonable response to have. I mean, why would anyone want to continue in a relationship with someone who could betray them in such a way? You'd have to ask yourself, how could I continue to, to love and to, to care for and protect and help and even perhaps be willing to die for, if need be, this person who could commit such a treacherous act against me? And yet, brothers and sisters, what we see in our text today is that Christ did. Christ did. And what makes what Christ did even more rich and even more meaningful and even more gracious and even more glorious is that He determined to love and to help and to protect and to care for and even die for those who betrayed them even prior to their betrayal. You see, when you become friends with someone, that relationship buds and it grows and it blossoms and you do a lot of things for your friend uh, because you care for them and you Believe that 
that as your friend, they are loyal to you and they would never do anything uh, to, to harm you or to hurt you. They would never do anything to betray you. And so it, it makes it easy, doesn't it, to, to do good things for our friends. It makes it easy for us to love them. But let me ask you this. Right? This is, is the question. Would you still enter into that friendship? Right? Would you still enter into that marriage relationship if you knew ahead of time that that person would betray you and turn their back on you? This is what Christ did. Right? He chose apostles whom he knew ahead of time would betray him and turn their backs upon him in his most stressful of hours. And not only does he strike up this relationship with the, with the apostles, knowing that they are going to deny him and abandon him, but he strikes up this relationship knowing that they are going to deny and abandon him, yet all the while knowing and determining within himself that he would continue to love them and that he would demonstrate his love for them by going to the cross for them. Now what is also true about those relationships that we enter in with people who betray us is usually you go into those relationships and that person doesn't enter into it with the intention of betraying you. And this is what's true in our text today. The, the apostles didn't come into this relationship with Jesus with the intention of betraying them. Right? Eleven of the twelve apostles never thought in their mind one time right, that they could hurt or betray Jesus. But I want us to see, brothers and sisters, here in lies the problem. They never thought they could. They never thought that their heart was capable of betraying and abandoning Jesus. Right? They didn't see hurting or betraying Him as an option for themselves. But as we will discover later in Mark's Gospel, is that their hearts were deceived. Right? They were blinded by pride. They were careless about watching over and safeguarding their heart, not truly understanding their heart nor its capabilities. And this is what we want to then look at further together in our text today. And we're going to do so then under three main points. And the three main points are these. Uh, first, Jesus reveals the apostles' hearts. Jesus reveals the apostles' hearts. Second, Peter foolishly trusts his own heart. Peter foolishly trusts his own heart. And then third, Christ's own heart for his people. Christ's own heart for his people. So point number one, Jesus reveals the apostles' hearts. Look with me once more starting in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, the singing of the hymn which Jesus describes here is what we talked about last week. It would, it would have been the singing of Psalm 116 to 118, which would have brought about the conclusion of the Passover celebration. And so after singing the, the so in, after singing of the Psalms, what we see then is Jesus and the apostles uh, make their way to the Mount of Olives. And if you recall, the Mount of Olives overlooks the temple, and that is where we uh, looked at the Olivet Discourse 
uh, for some time in Mark chapter 13. But it's here then that Jesus speaks these, these odious words uh, that no one who loves Christ or who says, follow, or who says they follow Christ uh, ever wants to hear. And those words are, you will fall away. Here Jesus says to them, you will fall away. He directly and he bluntly says to them, you will leave me. You will abandon me. You will deny me. And the certainty of that statement is made all the more real when Jesus goes back to the Scriptures to prove it. Right? He's pointing out to them that as sure as God's Word is true, right? because God's Word is true, He cannot lie, they will fall away. And the text that Jesus refers to when He says, it is written, uh, comes to us from the book of Zechariah in chapter 13. And I would ask if you would please turn with me to the book of Zechariah and we'll look at this text together. Uh, Zechariah is the second to last book of the Old Testament right before Malachi. So we'll look at Zechariah in chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13. We're going to begin here in verse number 1. On that day there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, What are these wounds on your back? He will say, The wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one who refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Now verse 7 here has to do right, with the father striking the son, the good shepherd of the sheep with the sword, which is symbolic language really for the afflictions, the, the sorrows, the, the, the violent death, the, 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 the cross, the, the wrath that was poured out upon Jesus. This is what that language is symbolic of which Christ endures on behalf of His people. But it's Christ and His blood which is the fountain opened for the house of David that Zechariah describes in verse 1. But here, right, Zechariah declares that the, the sheep of the shepherd will, will scatter when the shepherd dies. And what we see then in our text here is that Jesus takes Zechariah 13.7 and He applies it to Himself 
and to the apostles. Right? They are the sheep who will scatter when the Father pours out His wrath upon the Son and He suffers and He dies upon the cross. Yet, what I want us to see is what does Jesus tell them after saying this? Right? This is what's truly remarkable. What does He say to them after telling them, you are going to abandon Me, you are going to forsake Me, you are going to deny Me? Does He say, get away from Me, you unfaithful servant? Does He say to them, you've had your chance, it's over, leave Me alone, I'm going to find new and different apostles who will not betray Me? No, He doesn't say that. In fact, what does He do? He makes a promise to them. Right? What He does say is, you will leave Me, you will abandon Me, but I will return and like a good shepherd... I will gather my scared sheep once more to myself. He says, I know that when I am afflicted, you will be scared, you will run away. But I will return the sheep back to the sheepfold once more. Jesus understands that He needs to go to the cross, but He understands in going to the cross, He's dying for them and for their sin. And one of those sins is the sin of abandonment. But Jesus also knows that there is something beyond His death that must occur. Right? That He's looking beyond it. He's looking past it to the resurrection here in the promise. And in fact, it's this promise that the apostles will soon be reminded of as well. We see this in Mark chapter 16 and verse 7. We're told that when Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb to, 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 to go find Jesus, the tomb is empty And there's an angel inside, and the angel says to her in verse 7, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Here even Peter's singled out, isn't he? The the angel tells Mary to go back, tell the disciples, but make sure you tell Peter as well. The, The one who said that, He loved me so much He would never deny me, yet did. Go back and tell them that what I said was true. That that reunion that I declared will come to pass. Tell them to go meet me in Galilee. And what we will see later though in Mark's Gospel is that sin of betrayal. We will see that sin of abandonment. But here in our text today, what we want to ask though is is really how does that happen? How How do we get to the point that Peter is able to deny Christ Three times, even after Jesus tells him that he is going to deny him. And brothers and sisters, it's because even though Jesus reveals their hearts to them, and he tells them the wickedness that remains in their hearts, they do not listen or believe his words. Even when he declares to them, it is written, they refuse to watch over their hearts. They refuse to safeguard their hearts. They refuse to search out their hearts to find the wickedness that Jesus says was there. They were not willing to acknowledge that perhaps the one who created them knew their hearts better than they knew them themselves. They refused to listen then and to, to act and respond appropriately in light of what our Lord said. They doubted. Even if it's unintentionally the omniscience of God and the trustworthiness and the faithfulness of God because they thought that they knew their hearts better than God did. They trusted their own knowledge of their hearts more than they trusted the knowledge of God that He had of their hearts. But we have to ask, what, do, what does the Scriptures tell us? Well, turn with me to Psalm 139, please. Psalm 139. 
Psalm 139, and beginning in verse 1, this is what we, we hear. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You see, brothers and sisters, as as finite creatures, we cannot exhaustively know ourselves, but there is one who does, and that one is our Lord and our God. He knows each and every one of you. He searches each and every one of your hearts. He knows all of your thoughts. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. He knows what you're trying to pray even when you can't get it out with words. He knows all of His creatures exhaustively. And that includes His his rational creatures as well. And so what I think this ought to teach us then is that when Christ speaks and He speaks to us by His Word and through His Word, we as His people must listen. It's teaching us that when Christ speaks, we must listen. Right? When He speaks to us by His Word, and He tells us uh, we are to, to walk after the Spirit so that we do not satisfy the desires of the flesh, we would be wise to obey and listen, wouldn't we? Right? When, when Paul says to us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and 11, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, we need to listen and act because God knows our hearts. He knows our heart's weaknesses. He knows what it is that we need to stand against the schemes of the devil and not fall. And so we we must listen and obey and heed the instruction of our Lord so that we do not fall away. And we can look to Jesus to see the benefits of what a, a life marked by faithful submission to God and His Word, looks like. And what does it look like? It looks like a life that is poised. It looks like like a life that's self-controlled. It looks like a life that that trusts. And how is, is Christ able to do this and not be overcome and overridden with fear? Well, it's because Jesus can see beyond all of His circumstances. And He sees the hand of God in all things, working everything out according to His purposes and plan. Right? Jesus knows that in obeying the will of the Father, the Father is going to act faithfully in doing all that He has promised. And brothers and sisters, I submit to you that when we heed God's Word as well, when, when we listen to what God says, we too ought to be able to live poised and self-controlled lives. Right? Not overcome, not tossed to and fro. But we may know that God likewise is going to act faithfully towards us in all that He has promised us as well. And this ought to cause us right, to likewise be able to live uh, with much stability in this world. right? Not being overcome by fear. Not being overcome uh, by anxiety or, or by worry. And this is a comfort though that we miss out on when we do not heed God's Word. Right? You miss out on that stability of living 
when you do not heed God's word. Right? For God knows our hearts. He, he knows what we need. He knows the remedies against uh, our heart's deception of itself. But we must listen because He alone fully knows our hearts. Right? And He displays that full knowledge of our hearts to us when He reveals our hearts to us, just as He has revealed uh, Peter and the apostles' hearts to them. And this takes us into point number two, which is Peter foolishly trusts his own heart. Please look with me then starting in verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Here Peter demonstrates what is true of of most believers. And that is that there is far more wickedness in our hearts than we even know. Peter demonstrates that there is far more wickedness in our hearts than we even know. Usually what happens is that we, we, we don't take seriously God's Word. We don't listen to God's Word. And as a result, we don't pay attention to our hearts. We don't pay attention to the wickedness of our hearts or the weaknesses of our hearts. And as a result, we don't see that wickedness until we're put in a situation where we're put on the spot and we fall flat on our face just as Peter did as he denied Jesus three times yet never believing that that was something that his heart was capable of doing. But do we see though the danger of self-confidence and trusting in one's own heart? Do we see how detrimental and harmful it can be to have that self-confidence and that trust in one's own heart? Right? We often think wickedness and the deceitfulness of the heart is something that the unbeliever has to worry about. But no, brothers and sisters. Right? The wickedness and the deceitfulness of the heart is something the believer has to worry about as well. The believer too is, is subject to temptation and becoming ensnared in wickedness. This is why we must though pray for humility. We must daily be praying for humility. The very opposite of what Peter here demonstrates for us in our text, isn't it? Right? Peter here is full of pride and arrogance and self-confidence. So much so that he says in verse 29, even if everyone else here betrays you, Lord, I will not. And I ask, brothers and sisters, how many of you sit here today and how many of you think that about yourselves? How many of you sit here today and say, I know so much, I'm so smart. I'm smarter than than the average bear, right? I know more than most people. And so if anyone's going to fall, it's going to be them, not me. Or how many of you sit here today and you say say to yourselves, well, I've been a Christian 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and I've never fallen away from the Lord. And I've gone through a lot. So if I haven't fallen away from Him thus far, I surely won't fall away from Him in the future. Well, brothers and sisters, if you think that way, I caution you today to immediately flee that type of thinking. Right? And look to, to Peter as your example. Right? He declared total and complete loyalty to the Lord. Right? He says, even if all forsake you, I won't. Right? I will go so far as to die for you before I deny you. And how did that end for Peter? In utter failure. Right? In utter failure. Right? When it came time for Peter to put those words to the test, 
What happens to Peter? He becomes ashamed of our Lord. He doesn't want to be identified with Christ in any way whatsoever. I'm pretty sure if I, if I took a poll this morning and I said, who here would be willing to, to die for Christ? Everyone's hand would go up. But what is the basis? Or what is the ground upon which you think that of yourself? Right? Because if it's that you trust your heart, and so you know what your heart will do when that situation comes, when someone says, denounce your faith in Christ or die, you're in the same danger that Peter and the apostles were in. The one who trusts his own heart, is that person's a fool. Peter demonstrates for us, doesn't he? That the one who forgets his weakness and thinks that he is strong is the one most susceptible to fall. But rather it's the one who understands their weakness, who recognizes their weakness, who is the one who flees to the one who is strong in order that he might stand and not fall. Don't forget, if any of you here trust your own heart, that one-third of the angels in the, in the heaven fell. Right? Don't forget that. Right? These were the ones who shined brightly with our Lord in heaven. Right? They, they were in the, the, the presence of God in glory, and yet temptation and sin cast them down. This is why I submit to you, brothers and sisters, we must fear temptation. We must fear temptation and do everything that we can to safeguard and protect ourselves from it. Right? Paul says to the saints in Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12, We do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. And so what is the remedy against those spiritual forces that seek to do battle with us each and every day? Paul goes on to say in verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So what does that mean? It means taking up that shield of faith every single day, putting on that helmet of salvation every single day, picking up the, 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 the sword of the Spirit every single day, which is the Word of God. It means praying at all times in the Spirit that God would help you to persevere and He would not lead you into temptation, but deliver you from it just as our Lord teaches us to pray. And yet, brothers and sisters, how often do we, as Christians, leave ourselves open to the assaults of the evil one? How careless are we to daily put on the whole armor of God? Thinking that the armor that we put on yesterday is sufficient for us today. Not understanding that only having a partial covering leaves you open to Satan and his assaults from a hundred other different directions and angles that he sends your way. You might prepare yourself against one sin, but you then, in doing so, might neglect all these other sins. And when you neglect all those other sins, that is when the opportunity arises for Satan to bring about temptation in your life. We have to prepare ourselves against the sin and temptation, brothers and sisters. We must be warding off all sin. Right? And there is nothing more foolish than, than knowing this. Our Lord telling us this. This is what you must do in order to not become ensnared with wickedness and then not preparing ourselves in doing it. 
And how do we prepare ourselves? Well, how about by not trusting our own hearts? By not leaning on our own understanding and our wisdom and our own strength? By not becoming careless and mortifying the deeds of the flesh? By not becoming careless and putting to death sin every single day of our lives? How about not missing out the means of grace which God uses to fortify and strengthen our faith? And instead, what we ought to be doing is is turning to God, placing our faith in Christ, asking for His strength to help us to keep us from falling, by bringing our soul to rest in Christ each and every day and determining not to do anything unless we first heed the counsel and the wise wisdom of our Lord found in the Scriptures. Right? Peter learned this lesson, which is why Peter then could say in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, later on, that it is by God's power that we are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Right? May each and every one of us here this day come to learn that same lesson that Peter himself learned. That we might be able to, to recognize our own hearts and the weaknesses of our heart and whom it is we must go to for strength so that we might know uh, how we are to guard against it and fight against it each and every day. And this takes us then to our third and final point, which is Christ's own heart for His people. Now we have a, a privilege that Peter and the apostles at this time did not have. And that privilege is knowing how things turn out. Right? Even though Jesus gives them a hint of it, doesn't He, in verse 28. He says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And as I've pointed out, Jesus does this very thing. He goes to the cross to redeem His people by the shedding of blood that they may have forgiveness of sin that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. But what I want us to see in our text today and what I want us to see in particular under point number three is the heart that Jesus has for those who are His which ought to bring great comfort and encouragement to us. Right? For we know that although the apostles abandoned Christ, Right? Although Peter denies our Lord three times, Jesus does not forsake them for their failures. Even though they abandon Christ, Peter denies Him three times, Jesus does not forsake them for their failures. You see, one of the problems of seeing ourselves as fundamentally good people who are worthy to uh, be redeemed and are, who are worthy to, to, to die for um, is that we don't truly then understand the cross nor its necessity. Right? Because what we need to understand is that Christ did not come into this world uh, for perfect people. But rather, Christ came into the world to perfect those who are imperfect. Right? Christ did not come into the world for perfect people. He came in the world to perfect those who were imperfect. Right? Jesus Christ knew exactly who He was coming to save before He laid down His life. Right? He knew that we were will, wicked and guilty sinners. He knew that we were people of unclean lips and unclean hearts and unworthy sinners, yet He still loved us and He still came and died for us. And as His people, brothers and sisters, we have to, to know that there is nothing that will cause Christ to stop loving us or to love us any less. Right? We aren't to think every day when we sin, oh man, now that I've sinned, does Christ no longer love me? 
Right? We can know that He continues to love us and love us no less for He has promised this to us. And we know this because He is our mediator. Right? Christ is the mediator of the new covenant of His blood whom he has, in which He has brought us into. And as the mediator, He daily and continually shows that atoning work for our sins to the Father as He has taken that seat at the right hand of God. Right? And so we, we can know our sin is forgiven that we will not, never fall away, that Christ will never stop loving us, that He will never forsake us, that He will never cast us aside. And so we need to remember this. We need to remember what Christ has done next time temptation rears its ugly head. Right? We need to remember what Christ did and that ought to motivate us right, to prepare ourselves every day and to guard our hearts so that we would not fall away. John Owen provides for us a helpful way to think about and to navigate the temptation that lays before the believer. He says this, The tempted soul therefore says, Shall this temptation, these arguments, this possible pretense, this sloth, this self-love, this sensuality, this bait of the world, prevail over me to desert Him who went before me in the way of every temptation that his holy nature could be subject to for my good? Right? What Owen is telling us is to remember the humiliation of Christ. Right? To, to remember that Christ endured all this temptation not because he had to or was forced to, but because he chose to for us. And so how could we allow this world, how could we allow sin and temptation to cause us ever to desert Christ? shouldn't be able to, but brothers and sisters, that is exactly what you do when you choose sin and temptation over Christ. Right? You deny Christ. You desert Christ. You abandon Christ. This is why we have to continually and daily keep our eyes on Christ, to walk with Christ side by side throughout our day because we are weak and our hearts are liable to betray Him if we don't. This also means, brothers and sisters, that we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to recognize that we are weak sinners and apart from the grace of God, each and every one of us would rush headlong into sin and destroy ourselves. This also means being honest with ourselves about the activity of Satan and his ability and capability as well. As he is powerful, as he is persistent, as he is cunning, as he is crafty, and as he is waiting every single day for the right opportunity to pounce upon your heart. And so it means then for us turning to the one who loves us, turning to the one who dies for us in order for safekeeping and for refuge. It means looking to Him to make us aware of any present danger and to give us the grace to escape and to flee. It means daily praying for God's protection just as Jesus teaches us in His high priestly prayer in John 17 verse 15 when He says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Right? Understanding our own hearts better ought to cause us to pray this exact same way as our Lord does. Right? That He would keep our hearts away from the, from the evil one. And as brothers and sisters, we exercise faith that in God's promise that, that He will do this. That He will keep our hearts safe that He will make a way of escape when temptation comes, that He will deliver us. Right? We can trust that. 
and believe in that and rest in that. And yet, it can cause us to long and look forward to and await the time when we are finally and completely, once and for all, delivered from evil, when Christ returns to present us before the throne of His glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You, Father, for these passages that help to reveal our hearts to us. We ask, Lord, that You would make known to us our own weakness and our own frailty. And that, Father, You would help uh, by Your means of grace to, to strengthen and to fortify them and to help us to flee and to help us when temptation comes to, to look to Christ and to remember what Christ has accomplished for us in our behalf. So, Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.